We are still in Genesis 21. Kind of strange, a lot of times the chapters in Genesis are, you know, one part of one story, and this is really kind of broken up into three parts. So, uh, last week we were dealing with the birth of Isaac. Uh, this week is sort of the weaning of Isaac, and everything that happens as a result of that. And then we go into um, seeing another person we've seen before, Abimelech. And uh, Abraham has a small problem that has to be worked out with Abimelech. So, let us hear uh, the word of God. 21, verses 8 through 21. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation. Also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them off on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, Your word which reveals uh, who you are and all that you have done is also very much a human drama. We see, even in this text, people struggling with the hard choices produced by faith in you. So thank you for this passage, this difficult passage. Help us to understand it, to see the greatness of Christ by it, and to live with that same relentless trust that that Abraham did. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the one that Abraham longed to see. Amen. The Godfather. One of my favorite films. It started when I was, you know, small, because I was young when it all came out. And, uh, you know, of course, as a teenage boy, I'm fascinated by 
the mob and the violence and all that goes on in this story of a family. And it, it was after I became a Christian that I began to see what was really going on in the story of the Godfather. That it's not just about the mob, but it is about the idolatry of family. That's really the theme that runs through all three of those movies. I discount the fourth, I think. Um, but that's what goes through. And we see it, I'm doing this sort of out of order, but we see it at its very beginning when little Vito, not yet called Corleone, is sent off to America precisely because his family has been killed. They have been murdered by a, a local mafioso. And so he arrives on the shores of, of this, new, this country as an orphan, no family. And so it, it sort of fast forwards to him becoming an adult and him having a family of his own and he's trying to make ends meet in the, the local neighborhood and there he finds a person very similar to the one who slaughtered his family back in Sicily. And then he, makes a, he has a choice to make. What shall he do? Shall he come under and continue to fear this man called the Black Hand? Or will he instead protect his family in the way that his own father wasn't able to do? And so Vito goes on a course in which will corrupt him further and further by saying his family comes above everything. And so in order to provide for his family and protect his family so that what happened to him never happens to them, he embarks on this life of organized crime and becomes the one who is to be feared. He slays the monster and becomes the monster himself. He becomes corrupted with this idolatry of family. And it doesn't stop with him. His son, Sonny, captures the same thing. And you think his one son, Michael, his favored son, is the one who will somehow break out of this family because he doesn't like the whole... He sees what's going on and he, he sort of hates what it has become and yet he still is drawn to his family. And it is when his father is almost killed that something shifts in Michael. When he sees that no one else is able to protect his beloved father despite his father's flaws, he does the same thing his father did. He takes up the gun and he kills the man who attempted to kill his father. And so he embarks on this journey, this descent to becoming the godfather himself where he will do anything and everything within his power, legal or illegal, to protect the family. That's what that movie's about. Family. And the destructive power of idols. And right here is the beginning of this struggle that we're going to see in the next couple of chapters for Abraham, that he is going to be tempted with the same temptation of Michael Corleone and Vito Corleone, is it going to be God first, or is it, is it my family first? This is difficult because he's wrestling with things that we wrestle with. It is difficult because we're going to see this man, and, a, and we're going to look at him and some of the choices he is about to make, and, and we might be tempted to judge him for some of those choices. And yet the Scriptures uphold him for some of these choices because we have to look at why he did what he did for it to make sense. The big idea this morning is that clinging to God's promises brings difficult choices. These are not easy things that he is going to do. First part of that is clinging to God's promise brings persecution. 
Yeah, we don't like that. But clinging to God's promise does bring persecution. Moses, in a sense, hits the fast-forward button on the narrative. He goes three years in advance. I mean, we've had the birth of Isaac, this great celebration. And I wanted to pause on that, that moment. And remember that she says that God has brought me laughter. God has produced laughter. And that those who hear of this will laugh with me. Okay? Fast forward three years. That's the amount of time it takes for a baby to be weaned. And we have the, the action sort of picking up with that moment, that, that not, a big transition in the life of a child. And so what does Abraham do? He does like any good father would do. He throws a feast. He is excited. Because remember, this is an ancient agrarian society. There are no doctors you can go to. And so the fact that this child has made it this far is cause for celebration. And he throws this great feast. It's sort of like in The Godfather. How does the, how's the, the, the movie begin? A wedding ceremony. A great party where all the people are coming together. And so Abraham is throwing this great party and all these people are coming together. But not everything is as good as he hopes it would be. Okay? Because we have the presence of him who must not be named, so to speak. His name is not given in this, in this text. He's referred to numerous times. But Moses and the characters, you know, the, Sarah and Abraham and God himself, no one ever mentions the name Ishmael. He's there, but not named. Very interesting. But it is Ishmael who in the midst of this is observed mocking Isaac. That, of course, the, the, the word that is used there is the same verb as to laugh. But, it, but because of the construction, it is not just, it's not laughing along with like Sarah had envisioned, but this is laughing at. This is mocking. This is to jest, to deride, to make fun of. We don't know the, the exact context of what he was doing, but it, it, was, it was more dangerous, so to speak, than the average big brother teasing of little brother. Okay? Mockery. Yesterday, uh, in part of our small group for the guys, uh, Bill O'Reilly came up in conversation. And it just triggered a bunch of memories for me. um, Because years ago, I had done a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And when I got to, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you that if you even hate your brother, okay? And so I was going to preach on that. And so I was talking about the reality of hate and the evil of hate. And so I had done a Google thing for some reason, it came across this book called Sweet Jesus, I Hate Bill O'Reilly. And uh, your feelings about Bill O'Reilly are irrelevant. Okay? And I, I took that as sort of a, here it is, Jesus' name is being invoked for something evil. And so I used this to, to illustrate my point uh, throughout that sermon. And an odd thing happened. The people who wrote the book Googled their book and found me. <laughs> they listened to my sermon and they sent mocking emails to me. And then, and then, but what actually was interesting was they put a picture of me from the church website on their website. <laughs> and they did this whole thing about me and made fun of me 
And the reality that I believe that there is a God, and I believe that what they, how they approached this thing was wrong, because hatred is evil. When we stand up for truth, we will be mocked. This child is being mocked. Ishmael, at this point, is 16 or 17 years old. He was 13 in, in chapter 17 when uh, the circumcision took place. And at that point of the circumcision, God said, one more year. And so he was about 14 when Isaac was born. And so Ishmael, three years later, he's 16 or 17. He's no, you know, this is not a five-year-old. He's 16 or 17. He kind of has an idea of what's going on here. Okay. He's not, as I said, your typical older brother. Something more sinister is at work here. He is, in a sense, the seed of the serpent. Because he is treating Abraham's seed lightly. He is mocking and jesting uh, towards Abraham's seed. He is, in a sense, threatening God's promise. Maybe it was something like this. So you think you're the firstborn? Uh-uh. I'm getting it. I'm getting the firstborn share. I'm going to get the blessing that Dad keeps talking about. It's going to be me because I was born first. So, oh, little boy, you're not going to get it. I am. Something along those lines. He's going to probably try to invoke his right as the firstborn to steal the promise from the one that God has, has said would have it. And that is Isaac. So we're sort of revisiting this old battle that takes place, uh, you know, and, and Ishmael is actually an agent of the evil one. He has, he's corrupt like the evil one. We read from Galatians 4 this morning, and there's a reason for that, and that is because one of the parts it talks about in that passage was that the people of the promise should expect persecution from perishing people. That people who understand the gospel should expect to experience some sort of measure of persecution from, and in Paul's context, those who are born under the covenant of works. Those who hold to the law for their, their right standing with God. We should expect there's be some persecution that takes place through this. But it's not just people who are under the law. It is all those who hate the name of Jesus will persecute the people of the promise. I read just this morning, 70 more Christians were arrested in Iran. The power of persecution is alive and well in our world today. It is still there. Our acceptance, however, must, with God must only be founded in Christ. It is, it is those who really depend upon the, their flesh, their own good works, however they want to describe that, which, which persecute and hate us. Jesus himself tried to prepare his disciples for it in numerous occasions, even in the Sermon of the Mount, which I talked about, which spawned the whole Bill, Riley, Bill O'Reilly uh, sermon. Blessed, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is saying, when you're blessed on my, I mean, when you're persecuted on my account, you're actually blessed by your Father in heaven. John 15, 
Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And this text reminds us of the reality that all through his earthly ministry, Jesus was persecuted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all kinds of other ease. There are numerous people that wanted him gone. Okay? And it didn't stop until he was on the cross. And even then, they were, they were mocking him and deriding him, just as Ishmael had mocked Isaac. Where is your God now? You came to save other, save other people. Why don't you save yourself? They were mocking him at the foot of the cross. He doesn't just, as Tim Keller says uh, in a different way, he doesn't just suffer for us, he also suffers with us. He knows what it is like to endure this, the, the mockery and the physical persecution that can take place. He understands this because he has walked this road. He tries to remind us that faith in him and the one true God will bring us persecution. And so we come to this place where we must make a choice. And it's a difficult choice. Will we continue to believe what God has promised? Or instead, are we going to join in the mockers so that we are safe? Because if we stay on the promise, we risk danger, hatred, persecution. In the short run, to abandon the promise seems good, white, uh, right and wise. It's difficult. But your choice will ultimately rest upon how much you value the promise of God. We see that even in the John, uh, Matthew 5 passage. It says, Be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is holding out a great promise for them. I know it's tough. Hang in there. But you know what? It's going to be good in the end. But these people who have it easy, not so good in the end. They will not have this great reward. We see this echoed in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, where the author does this. Remember those earlier days when you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. He's talking about persecution. These young Christians experienced this great suffering of persecution. He says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized or empathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Okay, these are people who, you know, they came and took their homes. They came and said, oh yeah, that bank account, you're a persona non grata. That money belongs to us now. They joyfully accepted that. How is it that they could joyfully accept that? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. These are people who are living, banking everything on the promise of God, not for this life, but for the one that is to come, the one that shall never end. 
That is how they stood firm in the face of persecution. That is how it took place. That is the only way we can stand when it does visit us. And so persecution for the promise tempts us to let go unless we know that Christ is greater than all they can take away from us. So, clinging to God's promise brings persecution. Secondly, clinging to God's promise brings great loss. I wish I didn't have to say that clinging to God's promise brings great loss. It's out of step with a lot of what you hear on Christian TV and radio these days, but nonetheless it is true because it is from Scripture. It is Sarah who perceives the great danger that is posed by Ishmael should he exert his rights. And so she goes to her husband and says, get rid of the slave woman and her son. Again, Ishmael's never named. Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Calvin is really hard on Sarah. I don't think he should be hard on Sarah. Because <laughs> Sarah's the one who gets it. And she does not in herself have the power to do what must be done to protect God's promise. It is Abraham who must do what must be done. And so the, the, the verb is, in the, is an imperative, but imperatives are also used not just for commands, but also for requests and prayer in Scripture. Okay, so she's basically pleading with him, interceding for Isaac that he would send away the slave woman and her son. In other words, she wants to legally dissolve the legal rights. There was, we see this in other uh, things that we've dug up in archaeology that are in this time period from some of the cultures that are around the, the promised land and that what you would do is you could do this. <laughs> you could sever the legal rights by casting them out. Okay? And she's asking Abraham to do this, to cast him out, to separate, to break the, the legal right he has as the firstborn, to disinherit him is what she's saying. You must disinherit Ishmael because he is seeking the promise that has been given to Isaac. He wants to be a thief. She wants Abraham to treat Hagar and Ishmael, sort of like Michael treated Fredo, his brother, and Kate, his wife, when they, in his mind, betrayed the family. Well, Fredo really did, but <laughs> you're dead to me. That's essentially what's, what's here. You are dead to me. That's what she wants him to do. That's what she wants him to say. Abraham is rightly distressed by this. After all, this is his son. This is his flesh and blood. He loves his son. Do you see, understand the stalemate that's going on as Abraham is wrestling in his heart with what to do? Remember, the last time he listened to Sarah, the last two times he listened to Sarah, didn't go so well. The first one is why he has this child in the first place. And that's when God shows up. Comes to him in a dream and says, Sarah is right. Listen to her. Okay? He didn't have that the first two times he listened to Sarah, but this time he does. Sarah is right. This is not like the last two times. 
This time, do what she says. Why would God tell Abraham to do such a horrible thing? Doesn't this on the surface sound incredibly horrible? Steve, I want you to disinherit your child. I want you to send him away. Get rid of him. That sounds incredibly harsh. Among the things that people bring up in the Old Testament about how, I mean, how horrible and awful God supposedly is, they never bring up this one. I don't know why. Maybe because we devalue children in our culture. But I don't know if I could do that. But why does he do this? The promise. God specifically brings up the promise. You are to be reckoned through Isaac. Okay? This promise I gave to you back when you were in Haran is through this son. Everything I'm going to do is going to happen through this son. And this other one threatens it. Send him away. It is through Isaac that the nation will be born. It is through Isaac that the kingdom will come. That the king will come. Pointing to the real king, the Messiah. It is all through Isaac. Abraham must do what he must do to protect Isaac. And if that means sending away Ishmael, so be it. Abraham must love God and he and love his promise more than he loves his own flesh and blood. And it might be easy for us at this moment to kind of say, well that was Abraham. But what does Jesus say in Luke 14? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus basically is putting what takes place here in Genesis 21 in command form. In this instance, the word to hate really has to do more with where you prioritize, not so much as he's not saying, you know, that I must hate my father. But Jesus must be more important to me than my father. Such that I do what Jesus tells me to do instead of what my father tells me to do. Obviously, I'm not supposed to hate my wife. I'm commanded in Scripture to love my wife. And yet... I must do what Jesus calls me to do if it differs from what my wife calls me to do. Isn't that interesting? This is exactly, in this text here, in Genesis 21, that's exactly what's going on here in the sense that this time, God says, Sarah and I are on the same page. <laughs> you don't have to cast her out. Okay? Application of this. And so... Even yourself. You can't put your own self-will above the will of God, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple. 
what, and essentially, what you want suddenly becomes irrelevant if you have decided to follow Jesus. If you say that he has bought you with his blood, then you don't have any rights, which is why many places in Scripture we're called slaves. We have no rights. We have been bought with a price. We belong to him. We, we can't just sort of do whatever it is we want to do, but we must obey him. And this sometimes mean this, means this great loss. Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3 that he considered everything that everyone else treasured to be loss or garbage or junk for, for the precise uh, gain of knowing Christ himself. That all that stuff stood in the way. And so he's saying that, you know, that we too must consider anything a loss if it keeps us from knowing Christ. But what is it about Christ? Part of it is, is that he left everything. He left home for us. Though he was rich, he impoverished himself for us. Though he had glory, he became nothing. A slave for us. He did it first. He did it to rescue us from our own desires. To rescue us from our idolatry, whether it's family, like the Corleones, or anything else. He came to rescue us from that. So what we cling to actually reveals what we treasure. Are we going to cling to God and His promise? Or are we going to cling to something else? Sometime back I mentioned the movie The Jerk and the, the, the scene where he, he's lost it all and he's leaving his house. He's kicked out. He's, his marriage is, is, is destroyed. And he's, he's like, all I need is... And he picks up the remote control. And then he sees something else that he likes. All I need is this remote control and this pen. And he, he stumbles through the room and he gathers like five more objects and he leaves the house kind of disheveled. And he sees his dog, but even his dog doesn't want anything to do with him Okay, at this point. And he becomes destitute upon the streets. All these things that he treasures until he sees another homeless woman who has one thing. And he trades everything he has for that one thing. A thermos. Might not seem all that significant. And yet... Before he was married, he sang a love song to, his, to the woman that he loved. I'm picking out a thermos for you. Not an ordinary thermos for you. And so the thermos that he sees represents what he has lost. He trades everything he has for the thermos that reminds him of his wife. He couldn't have both. He had to let go in order to pick up. There's only so much stuff we can hold in our hands. There's only so much stuff we can hold in our hearts. And if we try to cling to too much, there is no room for Christ here. Sometimes we have to let things go because they become too important to us. 
And what we cling to reveals what's ultimately important to us. And so what does Abraham do? He rises early the next morning, sets him off with food and water. Obedience. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Abraham to do that. We're going to see he's going to have to do something harder in a couple of weeks. But that's hard. But he does it. So clinging to the promise means that we have to release our hold on some things. So we've got clinging to the promise brings persecution. Clinging to the promise brings great loss. And thirdly, clinging to the promise brings blessing to others. And you should probably be going, okay, how does that happen? He just got sent away. Okay, How does clinging to God's promise by Abraham bring blessing to others? God assures Abraham in, in this revelation that he has a plan for Ishmael. That he will make him into a great nation too. He will receive earthly blessings. He is not going to be the one through whom Abraham's offspring is reckoned, but still, precisely because God says, He is your offspring, I'm going to make him a great nation. Because he's connected to you, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to make him a great nation. He will not receive the spiritual blessings that Isaac is going to receive, but nonetheless, he will become a great nation. Ishmael experiences these earthly blessings precisely because of Abraham's faith, despite his own, Ishmael's, unbelief. Okay? He's blessed because of Abraham, not because of his own faith. Okay? But again, earthly blessings, not eternal spiritual blessings at work here. Ishmael experiences what, what some theologians call common grace, but he remains hard-hearted. Okay? It's not saving grace. It's not transforming his heart of stone into a heart of flesh, but actually this good, these good things that are given to him meet this heart of stone. And he's hardened even further, increasing his guilt. We see in Isaiah 26 this very thing. Though grace is shown to the wicked, okay, catch that. Though grace is shown to the wicked. Obviously not saving grace here. A common form of grace. They do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. So that's why some theologians hold to this idea of common grace. It's there, and it increases their guilt and condemnation before him. Ishmael is going to be in a worse place because of the grace God gave him. Instead of heading to Egypt, it's really interesting, you know, here's food, here's water, take the boy, go. Last time she got kicked out, she went to Egypt. I mean, she made a beeline for the border. This time she's kind of wandering around. I don't know why she didn't go to Egypt, but this time she's wandering around the desert of Beersheba. She's clueless as to where to go, and she ends up being near death because the water has run out. The 30 gallons in a skin are gone. 
She puts, she lays him under a bush to get a little bit of shelter to perhaps prolong his life. Perhaps someone will stumble upon them with water and they'll be able to live. Who knows what she was thinking about. But she, she goes about a bow shot away because she does not want to hear the cries of her son as he possibly dies and she lays down crying herself. And God heard. God did not shut his ears. But he has compassion because of Abraham. Because he is a promise-keeping God and he made a promise to Abraham, God is going to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. And so he reminds her, don't worry, the child will grow and he will become a great nation. Remember, I told you this way back when, when you ran away before. <laughs> when I sent you back to Abraham's household. I told you this. It's still true. Now what's interesting is that God opened her eyes. There was a well there the whole time. Okay, the text doesn't say, then God made a well. (laughs) Or that suddenly a rock broke and water was shooting out of this thing. He opened her eyes and she saw the well. It was there, it's like refrigerator blindness, right? Wives, you all know your husband has this. (laughs) Opens the door. I can't find the salsa. Honey, where's the salsa? It's right there. It's on the door. Can't miss it. And yet we, we're helpless when it comes to the refrigerator, right? Okay. Where is it? I swear. She, she can't see it. It's right in front of her and she can't see it until God opens her eyes and preserves the life of her and her son. But not just that. And this is what I was stumbling over when I was reading it, I was studying this text. God was with the boy. We find that later on in, in the life of Joseph. God was with Joseph. And everything he did prospered. And I'm having trouble sitting here. I'm, I'm trying to think. What? What's going on here? <laughs> Why is God with Ishmael? Precisely in light of Galatians 4, in which it sounds pretty much like Ishmael was reprobate. Okay? Because he's the son of the slave woman and he's to be cast out. He's the persecutor, not the one persecuted. Okay? God is with the boy to fulfill his promise. And so God keeps him alive and prospers him to keep his promise to Abraham. And we see as as it summarizes his life. You know, our lives will be summarized at some point, and I don't think yours will say that you lived in the desert of Paran. Um, <clears throat> it, it may not say that you're an archer, and hopefully, it won't say that you got a wife who was an Egyptian. But again, there, there's this little hint here. Remember, Egypt. Egypt, good or bad? Bad. <laughs> okay, he marries a worshiper of idols. Okay. His mom gets him a wife who worships idolatrous things. It points to the, the reprobation, the, the sinfulness of this man, the lack of repentance in his heart. And I'm wondering, why is this here? And, and thankfully, I'm not left to my own devices. There was someone else who, who reminded me of this. The argument of the lesser to the greater is what takes place here. Here we have... Ishmael, 
who is apart from the promise, who is cast out into the wilderness, and yet God preserves him. Right? Oh, Israel, when you're cast out of Egypt into the wilderness, God will preserve you. If I could preserve this boy who would reject the blessings of eternity, certainly I will protect you. Moses is writing this to reassure the people who have just left Egypt. They've been just tossed out of Egypt in the middle of the night. And he says, don't worry, God is with us. He's going to keep his promise. If he keeps a promise for Ishmael, he'll keep one for you. So, even more, those of us who have joined Jesus outside of the city, as it says in Hebrews, the wilderness, guess what? He is sufficient and promises to provide and protect and preserve. We're not on our own. Though we are surrounded by perishing people who want to persecute us, we are not alone. He is with us. So the conclusion of this matter is that really our choices do matter. They reveal what matters most to us. Uh, Michael Corleone put his family above everything and descended into greater and greater evil. But we see someone else at work here. Christ. Through the rest of Scripture, who forsook all to gain us. And that he holds us in his powerful hand, as it says in, in John 10. He preserves us on this side of heaven. And so what do we cling to most fiercely? When we cling to him, we can endure persecution. We can endure loss for the sake of the gospel. We can endure all of these things because ultimately he holds us more than we hold him. So let's pray. Father, what you call us to do is no easy task. In fact, apart from your help, we are not able to do this. Apart from your grace, um, we are Ishmael. (laughs) We're nothing like Isaac. And we need your son, uh, who has transformed us to continue to sanctify us. What you do often cuts across the grain, across all of our natural affections, to ourselves and to our families. But you do not merely demand, but you have given. To you who did not spare your own son, but gave him for us all, you also give us all things we need for life and godliness. So, You sent your son away, and he went willingly to bring us back to you. So that we treasure you at all is merely a reflection of the fact that you have first treasured us. So help us to cling to him who actually holds on to us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.